Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to everyone, depending where you are in the world. And welcome to our next session as part of Unsettled Objects. This afternoon, we've got two presentations. Um, the first one from Laura Phillips, who I'm going to let introduce the way that she wants to, but who's coming to us from Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. And she's going to be bringing a settler view from ongoing colonized lands. So without further ado, then I'm going to hand over to Laura for the start. Good morning, everybody. My name is Laura Phillips. I'm a PhD candidate in cultural studies at Queen's University in Cataraqui, Kingston, in what is now known as Ontario, Canada. I'm going to be speaking about my decolonizing work as a settler, which is also meant to challenge the notion of post-colonial as being applicable to Canada. In Canada, museums, heritage spaces, and other memory institutions are only beginning to grapple with decolonizing approaches to ways of working and presenting stories that placed unacknowledged and unstated colonial norms under scrutiny. Settler museum professionals are reckoning with processes of unlearning and relearning as we undertake the uncomfortable work of understanding what our presence on these lands is complicit with and who we continue to displace. This presentation is going to discuss some quotes from the formative readings I've come across during my PhD research as I put them into context in relation to museums in Canada, my own reckoning with being a settler, and my hopes for the future. I position myself as a cisgendered, able-bodied white settler. My ancestry is Western European, mostly Irish and Welsh. My dad grew up in a so-called working class family in Liverpool, England, and immigrated to Canada in the late 1960s. As a result, I have dual nationality with Canada and the UK. My mom's family, Blackall, has been in what is now Canada since the early 1800s. Some family arrived in Montreal from Limerick, Ireland, where they were landowners, while others arrived in what is now Ontario as empire loyalists after the War of Independence between the 13 colonies and Great Britain in the late 1700s. I grew up in the area of southwestern Ontario that was settled under Ontario Treaty 2 or the McKee Purchase of 1790, Treaty 6, the London Township Purchase of 1796, and Treaty 21, the Longwoods Purchase of 1819. These treaties overlay and intersect with the territories and current homes of the Oneida Nations of the Thames, the Chippewa of the Thames, and the Muncie Delaware Nations. I've used this word settler a few times now to identify myself, and I want to be sure that everyone has a clear definition of how this term is used today. Dylan Robinson defines the term settler as a statement of positionality that seeks to make visible the ways by which non-Indigenous people have benefited from colonial policy such as the Indian Act in Canada and the genocidal policies of Indian residential schools. The term settler has been adopted as a form of self-identification by those who were not historically the first settlers of the already occupied Indigenous lands, now known as Canada, but nevertheless understand their complicity in and benefit from ongoing colonial policies that continue to constrain Indigenous rights and resurgence. 
So as a descendant of white European ancestry, I've only experienced communities forged within places where my family and I had the privilege to choose to live. Not once has my family or community been forcibly relocated or confined in any space in the violent ways that have been and continue to be inflicted upon indigenous peoples across this land to accommodate settler desires. Now this next quote from a fellow settler, Corey Snellgrove, in my opinion, accurately describes settler society in Canada for at least the last 150 or 200 years, right up till today. When reflecting on the meaning to settle, I think about what it means to materially take up residence, to take up a abode in a foreign country, which I have done. To settle is an attitude, a way of being that gets fixed in one's heart and mind, such that I don't have to think about the violence against Indigenous peoples if I choose not to. It is to presume permanency, a temporality without end. It is a way to establish authority over others, as the state and its settlers seek to do over Indigenous peoples. It is a mode of masculinity in which the land is married to exploitative capital. To settle does not require all settlers to own private property, but like many settlers, I do. I now have citizenship in Canada. I was born and educated in the UK and later further educated in Canada. I speak English with a Western accent. I have a middle-class income. I carry no overt religious markings and I have settled on stolen indigenous land. Now to understand this in the local context of where I'm living, in 2015, Dr. Terry Lynn Brennan, a local consultant of mixed Haudenosaunee and British ancestry, surveyed Indigenous peoples in Kingston for a report entitled Kingston First Peoples Purposeful Dialogues Relationship Building Phase 2. One of her interviewees commented that Indigenous peoples in Kingston are invisible, a concern shared by others in the survey. This invisibility can be understood as one of the ongoing consequences of colonialism, which is, as noted by Snellgrove, inextricably linked to my settler privilege of choosing whether or not to even acknowledge that we live in a colonial state. To visibilize Indigenous peoples and cultures in our diverse communities, we need to visibilize the many colonial structures that we settlers take for granted and that enable us to continually benefit from this privilege of choice. Now, as I am on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe territories, I've centered my research on writings and worldviews authored by scholars from these nations as much as possible. To start at the beginning, to attempt to try to understand the origins of this land as it is known by these nations and acknowledging my settler understanding will always be incomplete, I quote from Vanessa Watts, a scholar of both Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe ancestries. According to Haudenosaunee, Sky Woman fell from a hole in the sky. John Mohawk writes of her journey towards the waters below. On her descent, Sky Woman fell through the clouds and air towards the waters below. During her descent, birds could see this falling creature and saw she could not fly. They came to her and helped her to lower her slowly to waters beneath her. The birds told Turtle that she must need a place to land as she possessed no water legs. Turtle rose up, breaking through the surface so that Sky Woman could land on Turtle's back. Once landed, Sky Woman and Turtle began to form the earth, the land becoming an extension of their bodies. Amongst the Anishinaabe, a similar story is shared. Leanne Simpson retells the Anishinaabe creation story 
within the historical framework of the seven fires of creation. The two fires that I'd like to relate to this idea of place thought is the fifth and sixth fire. In the fifth fire, Gize Mido placed his her thoughts into seeds. In the sixth fire, Gize Mido created first woman, earth, a place where these seeds could root and grow. Now, before continuing, I'd like to emphasize these two events took place. They were not imagined or fantasized. This is not lore, myth, or legend. These histories are not longer versions of, and the moral of this story is, this is what happened. That's my emphasis with the underlines. So I introduced this to share the origin facts of how what is around us in these territories today came to be according to the people who grew here since time immemorial or whose prophecies led them here. In any case, these nations have presence here for millennia that predate the relatively short presence of my ancestors and myself. In museums across this land and certainly in this region, the indigenous histories and origin facts are rarely included, or if they are, they're presented as myth or lore, and certainly not as the factual history of this land. This is because the typical and dominant way of seeing and understanding what is around us is primarily based on Eurocentric and Enlightenment worldviews, instead of centering the worldviews that originated on these lands. This observation has been stated by Indigenous scholars for decades, if not centuries. Museums are only just starting to grapple with what this means for interpretation, collections management, and other policies and procedures. So one of the many Indigenous scholars who published on these divergences in worldviews was Bay of Quinty Mohawk scholar Deborah Dockstader. This quote is from her exhibit catalogue, Fluff and Feathers, which demonstrates how European misconceptions have played out. In the 16th and 17th centuries, explorers kept notebooks concerning local flora and fauna, geological features, and meteorological observations. Indian utensils, clothing, customs, languages were also noted, and specimens selected for safekeeping in Europe. Those objects were kept as examples of the type of things one could expect to encounter in North America with little or no interpretation of their cultural meaning. By the 17th century, Europeans had certain fixed ideas about what an Indian was supposed to look like. The physical remoteness of Indians to Europeans made it possible to create representations of abstract Indians that bore no resemblance to reality. In other publications, Doc Stater identifies and critiques Euro-Enlightenment impulses, all of which surround us today. And she explains how Indigenous ways of knowing and knowledge traditions are reduced into what makes or made sense to Eurocentric and Enlightenment logics. For example, people thinking with Enlightenment logics reduce synchronous events and complex relationships to linear chronologies and hierarchical structures, which Doc Stater says demonstrates that, quote, European-based histories are just as informed by their own cultural myths and symbols as our indigenous oral traditions. Thinking through this implication for Eurocentric presenting museums that want to shift to present decolonizing content means, for example, that linear chronologies, often called timelines, must be prefaced, qualified, and explained to clarify and visibilize that this presentation of time, events, and knowledge is but one worldview. Without this specificity, other worldviews are foreclosed upon. Now, this privilege of choice that Snellgrove discusses may become less of a choice in future as more museums and entities of all kinds implement changes required by international, national, and regional policy documents like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. 
the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the promotion of the OCAP principles. In Canada, we're implementing the calls to action from the report at the conclusion of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or the TRC. This commission formed in 2009 as part of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. This agreement is between the federal government and Indigenous populations who were subjected to enforced residential schooling in the 19th and 20th century. The last school closed in 1996. These programs were developed and endorsed by Great Britain and then by Canada. Through the recording of witness statements from parties affected by residential schools, the TRC created a historic record of this atrocity and the ongoing intergenerational trauma that is still present today. And you may have heard recently about the recovering of bodies of Indigenous children from mass graves located at these schools. The process is ongoing and so far over 6,000 children have been recovered. That's just in this summer. The report issued at the conclusion of the TRC included specific calls to action for museums to take to promote reconciliation in Canada and for the federal government and museums to comply with UNDRIP. An essential first step to this process is educating or re-educating the existing settler museum workforce, many of whom were educated in eras before the TRC Commission and who may unwittingly be promoting white supremacist and or colonial-centered views. The OCAP principles, ownership, control, access, and possession, these were developed by a First Nations entity and are meant to guide research projects and other matters relating to ownership of data and data use. So reducing settler narratives means confronting how museums contribute to the erasure of Indigenous presence today and in the past, and is an essential part of the work that needs to be done in decolonizing museums. So one of the foundational texts for decolonizing studies is Decolonization is Not a Metaphor by Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang, which I quote from here. Decolonization brings about the repatriation of Indigenous land and life. It is not a metaphor for other things. Because settler colonialism is built upon an entangled triad structure of settler native slave, the decolonial desires of white, non-white, immigrant, post-colonial and oppressed people can similarly be entangled in resettlement, reoccupation and re-inhabitation that actually further settler colonialism. The metaphorization of decolonization makes possible a set of evasions or settler moves to innocence that problematically attempt to re reconcile settler guilt and complicity and rescue settler futurity. So unless we untangle ourselves and work to undo the damage that we have wrought in the name of settler colonialism, we'll continue to perpetuate everything that is unequal, unjust, and violent. In other words, we'll continue to metaphorize the act of decolonizing. And grappling with how to do this decolonizing work and realizing we have to give something up, maybe even give a lot up, is really not a comfortable process for settlers. And in my opinion, it is necessary to bring settlers into spaces of discomfort as part of our reconciliation journey. And from there, we can discuss and imagine new futures and different ways of being. So museums are all about containment, accumulation, and selection. And again, related to Eurocentric and Enlightenment logics, actions that all fall within this definition of scopophilia by David Garneau. So this is how he defines it. The colonial attitude is characterized not only by scopophilia, a drive to look, but also an urge to penetrate, to traverse, to know, to translate, to own and exploit. 
The attitude assumes that everything should be accessible to those with the means and will to access them. Everything is ultimately comprehensible, a potential commodity, resource, or salvage. The academic branch of this enterprise collects and analyzes the experiences and things of others. It transforms story into text and objects in relation into artifacts to be cataloged and stored or displayed. So Scopophilia names the actual practice that museums are founded on and continue to enact daily. Seeing these actions defined as a condition, affliction, or affectation helps us to understand where so many museums find themselves today. Storage facilities jammed with countless and repetitive examples of objects, specimens, and belongings. Scopophilic desires are very strongly tied to the ordering, naming, and structuring that the Euro-Enlightenment way of seeing the world promotes. Now, in the same article, David Garneau critiques the way the word reconciliation is being used in colonial states like Canada. So, rather than accept the idea that there was a prior period of conciliation, we recognize the fact that the need for conciliation is perpetual. Conciliation is an ongoing process, a seeking rather than the restoration of an imagined agreement. The imaginary produced without reconciliation emphasizes post-contact narratives, the moment of conciliation settled as if it were a thing rather than a continuous relationship. Conciliation is not the erasure of difference or sovereignty. Conciliation is not assimilation. The treaties are historical facts, but honoring them requires a continuous relationship, which includes interpretation, reinterpretation, and renegotiation. This is perpetual conciliation. I'll come back to the third quote in a minute. One of my early aha moments in my own reconciliation journey or perpetual conciliation journey was realizing the hard work that needs to be done to change the settled way of being on this land is through the re-education of settlers ourselves. And this is the work that I'm trying to be part of. In Canada, the colonial government sanctions mandates related to reconciliation. As this quote shows, the problem with this is the presumption and assumption of returning to the fallacy of an original conciled state as a one-time event. Garneau's reconceptualization of reconciliation in what is now known as Canada as one of perpetual conciliation not only points out the impossibility of a return to a time that simply did not exist in the history of this land, but presents alternative terminology that settlers can use as a guide to reforming our ways of being on this land. Garneau also provides guidance to settlers with an end goal for doing the hard work of unsettling ourselves. Settlers who become unsettled, who are aware of their inheritance and implication in the colonial matrix, who comprehend their unearned privileges and seek ways past racism, are settlers no longer. They have become respectful guests, which in turn allows Indigenous peoples to be graceful hosts. The concepts presented by Garneau can be enacted in all museum spaces, not only museums with collections of Indigenous ancestors, beings, and belongings. And in fact, that's something else I hope to challenge in my PhD research, which is focused on a geology museum. All museum spaces can do decolonizing work, not just institutions caring for Indigenous belongings or ancestors. In the Decolonizing Museums in Practice class I co-teach, the course participants tend to feel inspired and hopeful after reading these words from Garneau, as demonstrated by these two comments from participants in our July-August 2021 session. 
Working towards being a respectful guest, the overwhelmed feeling is replaced with a let's get to work feeling. I love that idea as well, respectful guest. When I think of these words, it really puts me in a place of openness and appreciation of Indigenous values, knowledge, language, and culture. I feel encouraged, hopeful, and excited with the journey ahead. The decolonizing work that has taken shape for me through my PhD research, as well as from direct and indirect pedagogical experiences, have enriched my understandings of living in relationship with this land as an uninvited guest. One of my goals is to explore my Irish and Celtic roots and the process of purposeful forgetting that has taken place in my family and similar settler families in the last 200 years. I understand and respect that I will never be Indigenous to this place and that part of decolonizing myself means learning more about the lands, culture and people I am Indigenous to. Thank you so very much, Laura, for that really rich presentation and completely within the time. I particularly appreciated the journey you took us on from that definition of settler colonialism and the settler mindset but also into um, what is a, a large part of our work within the UNESCO chair, which is looking at this fraught and difficult word of integration, which is so often misunderstood, not as an integrating, an integral whole, a healing concept, but is understood as assimilation and is wrested back out of its intent into settler colonial mindsets as for us, very much founded on the idea of hospitality, mutual hospitality one to another and how that works. I really appreciated what you were saying around the Truth and Reconciliation Project. And one of our former PhDs um, has worked a lot on questions of reconciliation. But I was also thinking there's something here about actually a mindfulness around our use of language too. And you know, of, of course, you know, that even to use a word like reconciliation in English, which comes from French, which then has Latin roots and therefore goes all the way down these long lines, these linear lines of the settler colonial mindset and the cognitive empire that, that Santos speaks of. And I was just wondering whether there's much discussion within the museum sector and the work that you're doing about using, using language which is more appropriate to the process that might be initiated by, by those you know, who have, have lost so much in these processes and who have been settled, who have been colonized in these ways. In my experience, it is all pretty, everyone's sort of using the government sanctioned lingo, which is like reconciliation. But, you know, there's a lot of indigenous literature out there that is challenging, challenging those notions. And like my own supervisor is, is Dylan Robinson, who I also quoted from. And he's who really has influenced me to think about being very specific with language looking at what we're asking words to do um, instead of maybe doing actions. And there's things like these land acknowledgements that start lots of events and things now where you acknowledge the territory you're on, but that's sort of become very performative. And certainly it's really only taking place in sort of academia and arts. Like you wouldn't start a mining conference, for example, with a land acknowledgement usually. So, you know, it's very limited, again, to the people who are choosing to acknowledge this and think about it. And that's something that I personally hope that I can help change. Lisa has quite an interesting question in the chat here. She says she had the pleasure of working with and learning from your studies at Bristol Museum. So she says, hi, Laura. 
Um, and, uh, hi, hi, Lisa. <laughs> but um, do you have any specific examples, she said, of work done in Canada settler museums that you think looks like good practice? Oh, well, actually, funnily enough, I do have an article, a co-written article that's coming out shortly about a local museum um, in Kingston. It's called Murney Tower Museum. It's run by the local historical society who are very much kind of into the John A. MacDonald, who's our the first prime minister. So it's very, they sort of have typically promoted kind of a white history, but they're definitely um, sort of adapting and thinking through these new ways of being. So they actually, they have a Martello Tower and there's four of them in Kingston, which is this defense structure that are all around the, the empire. And in it, they actually like turned over complete authority to a Haudenosaunee consultant to put up some text panels that were about the indigenous use of the land before the tower and before the colonial town was here. And so she was able to speak to people and use oral history, and it's translated into Anishinaabemowin and Ganegehaka. So that's sort of the best example. But you do have to be really careful because there's a lot of work that is done, but it's more performative. But I think museums are actually starting to really understand it's not just about a partnership for a specific project. It's about hiring Indigenous people in all positions, not just curator positions. It's about really um, turning over authority, opening minds to multiple worldviews, and building relationships that are ongoing and maintained on a personal level. It's not just about the institution. It, it has to be personal. So you build and develop and take these relationships with you through your life. No, that's great, Laura. Thank you. And I think, you know, that it's lovely that you've brought that example up because, you know, without putting her on the spot, you know, this is very much the way that Pat has worked with the world cultures work that she's done at Calvin Grove Museum in Glasgow. You know, she was talking about there working with Tawana from 2006, I think it was, or seven, and ongoing still through the present day. And really seeing it not as a one-off exhibition, but something that is actually about handing, as you say, handing over authority to others to do this. But I can see Stuart has got his hand up. Thank you, Alison, and, and thank you, Laura. It's quite brief that I wanted to, to offer in to the dialogue, which is really around one of the titles that I give myself, my professional identity, is as a decolonial cartographer. And I use this term as opposed to an activist, because it seems to me that the necessary work of our time is to create new landscapes, to map these new territories. And one of the abiding concerns that I have is around the way in which communities that are gathered today and for the next three days, such as ours, how can we best enable the wider dispersal, the wider seeding, if you like, of the, the language and the themes and the practices that are espousing here to become more of a commonplace so that in a generation or two generations from now, when our descendants are in their comparable communities of exchange, the dialogue has moved on. 
the issues have moved on, the concerns are other than those that we are exploring today. So I'm not really sure if that's a reflection or a question, but that's what was front and center for me. Sure. I mean, my immediate thoughts, firstly, about the idea of cartography and knowing and lines, I think, you know, I'm hoping in your cartography work, you leave some areas that are unknown and unexplored, because I really think that's important to sort of get over this idea, you know, that we can know and map and put lines on everything. But I think for me personally, to really change the conversation, and I can't say that I am great at this myself, but when we teach this decolonizing museums and practice course, we really start with people at home on a personal level. And uh, we do readings about do this self-reflection and self-interrogation. So people, especially, you know, it's, it's like typically like white settlers, we really start to understand the privileges that our, we've had or that our ancestors had that were not shared and that were prevented from the local indigenous populations, like who, who weren't allowed to own property, for example, even though the land was still is all theirs. So it's about, I think, taking it out of the institution and like your workplace and bringing it home, looking at yourself, understanding your position. And I think that that is what is really potentially going to help change things into the future, because then you're modeling it with your family and your children and your friends and your call and you're having some of these less comfortable conversations or pointing out what is incorrect. So I really think that that's sort of the best way. Thanks, Laura, very much. And again, this morning, we had that lovely example of the way that Gamaly was responding to what is difficult or yet as yet unknown, or is unknowable with song. And we've we've seen the use of silence. And I know in within the, the team here in Glasgow a lot, we quote the work of R.S. Thomas, the Welsh poet, who said, poetry is that which enters the intellect by way of the heart and in this landscape of highly unsettled terms you know where we're all still contesting them a lot because they're not yet settled as Raymond Williams would say and we haven't yet come to a, a common understanding then I think Stuart's question's really pertinent for us. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.